Welcome to Building Bridges, ACMCU's premier podcast, where we discuss, debate, and examine contemporary issues facing Muslim-Christian relations in the United States and abroad. I'm your host, Andrew Condon, Digital Communications Manager for ACMCU. The Center for Muslim-Christian Understanding was founded in 1993 at Georgetown University with a mission to improve relations between the Muslim world and the West, building bridges of understanding between Islam and Christianity. In this program, we will speak to experts, faith leaders, authors, and influencers about how their work is shaping the discourse and fostering interfaith dialogue within their respective communities. Dr. Elise Morgenstein First is an assistant professor of religion and director of the Middle East Studies program at the University of Vermont. She earned her PhD at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill in religious studies with a specialization in Islamic studies in 2012. Her first book, Indian Muslim Minorities and the 1857 Rebellion, Religion, Rebels, and Jihad, was published in October of 2017. This past March, Dr. Morgenstein first joined us here at ACMCU for a talk entitled After 1857, Religion, Rebellion, and Jihad in South Asia. At this talk, Dr. Morgenstein first addresses how the events of 1857 to 1858 minoritized Indian Muslims, with particular attention to the use of jihad as a rhetorical concept in the colonial period. Dr. Morgenstein first joins us today as our special guest for this episode of Building Bridges. So before we get into the specifics of your talk and the nature of what you were covering here in your presentation, do you mind giving our listeners a background of how you got started on this topic of interest and, and what made you choose to focus on colonial India? It's a great question. It's a question my students ask frequently, and some of it is really just about coursework. So as a scholar in the discipline of the study of religion, we learn about how the study of religion comes to be. Why is it different from theology? How is it related to, but different from disciplines like history, anthropology, sociology? And the thing is, is that you can't study religion without studying imperialism and colonialism. The discipline is simply founded in this era. And the way that folks think about religion comes about through the colonial project. So how do we know Muslims are Muslims? Well, it's not by talking to them and asking them what they think about Islam, and it's not by Middle Ages writings. It is in, in a real way about the classification and categorization that happens during imperial rule. And, and so for me to think about Islam in South Asia, meant I was going to have to think about imperialism at some point. And so that's kind of where the deep dive started for me. Now, just for those at home who may not have an understanding of, of Indian history, when did India become a part of the British Empire? When you know, I want to kind of give some contextualization prior to the 1857 events that your talk focuses on. Yeah. So British India is confusing for most people because the British, in 1600, they charter the East India Trading Company with Queen Elizabeth I signing off on it. So in that way, it means that starting as early as 1600, you have the authorization of the British crown for a corporate 
entity, a corporate state, a company state is the way most historians refer to it, to go to India, set up shop, and enact economic policy, run their own military there, set up trade routes. So that's really early, slowly but surely over that time. And I would say increasing in the 1700s, major increasing in the 1800s. And this is where Americans always feel like they've got a part in this story. That after the War of 1812, it's when Britain is sort of finally leaving our shores here in the States. Many of them, if not most of them, head to South Asia and other imperial holdings. So you see an increase in uh, colonial presence, colonial rule in India at that time. And then in 1857, Indians sort of had had enough. There's a lot of different reasons why that happens. And that battle, that war, and that series of battles that last really from 1857 until 1858, though there are skirmishes in the in the further places from the center all the way until 18, uh, 1859, that's when we see a real transition from just colonial rule and company rule into the moment when Queen Victoria famously in 1858 announces herself the Empress of India. And that's when governmentally, India comes into a different kind of relationship with the UK, with Britain. So it almost seems like a reaction to losing territory over here in the American colonies. Absolutely. We, we understand that the Great Rebellion did have a lot of uh, reactions and, and rhetoric that came about as, as, a, as a result of it. But what were the impressions of uh, Muslim and, and Hindu native populations of India prior to the events of, of 1857? Yeah, so stereotypes and racialization and minoritization, they don't, they don't occur in a vacuum. It's, it's not as if, you know, on May... 13th. So the first acts of rebellion happen on May 9 and May 10 and May 11. It's not as if a few days after the British woke up and sort of concocted an imagination of Hindus and Muslims, to say nothing of Sikhs and Jains and other folks living in India. But before 1857, we see things that look a little different. So there are stereotypes of Muslims as fanatical and maybe um, turbulent to deal with, maybe a little bit quick to anger. And we see some fixation on violence. And we can trace that in European history well far back into um, periods when Muslims weren't referred to as Muslims, but as Turks, right? So the warlike Turks. But those were stereotypes about what governments looked like often. It, they were stereotypes about um, how you might handle this population. And I think the phrase that I really focused on in, in the book project was the phrase jihad and jihadi. You just don't see it with such regularity. You could set your watch to it essentially after 1857. Like when we're talking about Muslims, we're going to use the word jihad. When we're talking about Muslims, we're going to talk about jihadis, right? So Islam fosters jihad. Muslims are jihadis. And before 1857, it was really the rare British colonial figure that, that used that phrase or that 
really worried about Muslims with such a clear sense of purpose. So going into it, you gave in your talk some examples of the use of uh, certain animal proteins and animal-derived products for use in the lubrication of weapons that were given to Native populations to use. What, aside from those things, could you give a back a little bit of background of what led up to um, the Great Rebellion and how that came to be? Absolutely. So like most rebellions and revolts, they build on years of simmering uh, discontent. So Sir Syed Ahmed Khan actually in his book, Causes of the Indian Revolt, really does a, a pretty good job of listing all of the grievances that he perceives as a member of the Muslim community. And some of them are well-documented historical events, and some of them feel a little bit more nuanced expressions of discontent from a member of a community. So some of them include widespread famine, right? Like the British were pretty famous for extracting goods at a high price and leaving agri agricultural workers without enough to support their own needs or without enough to support the community's needs. And we see a number of famines that happen leading up to 1857 and the treatment of those folks. And, you know, famines happen, droughts happen, all of these things are both natural and then exacerbated by folks in authority who prioritized selling profitable what was salvageable from a, a drought-ridden agricultural space as opposed to redistributing that food amongst a population, right? So there's death. There is um, a changed system of who can work. So there are famous examples of quota systems. There are famous examples of stripping particularly Muslim elites of their roles in communities so to as replace them with either British folk or with Hindu folk who were seen as a little bit more friendly, a little bit more uh, sympathetic to British needs. There are, after 1813, there is a change in how the company, the East India Company that is, rules their colonized spaces. And one of the things that changed was that missionaries were allowed in. The company very famously before 1813 wanted nothing to do with religion. They really thought it was a, a beehive left undisturbed. So there was no um, missionary work in the inset. It was more about a, like a business arrangement. Yeah. And, you know, no missionary. Let's put that in scare quotes. Formally, missionaries were not admitted to India under proper documentation by the East India Company. Did they come? Yes, they did. And were some members of the East India Company missionaries? Of course they were. Um, but formally, they had a real sense of, I don't want to give them too much credit, they were not pluralists, but they absolutely had a sense that messing around in the local religions was bad for business. And ultimately, this is a business. And we're not interested in making this bad for business. After 1813, the parliament passes the Charter Act and changes the rules. And so missionaries are allowed to come in and you see the establishment of mission schools and you see some of the brutalizations that happened around forced conversions of rearing orphans in Christian spaces only to be allowed to be adopted out by 
Christian families. So there's a perceived sense among both um, Muslims and Hindus of like truly trying to undermine the family unit, trying to rob families of their right to have, I, I suppose, the choice to raise their children religiously. You see Sir Syed describe this as, as destroying lineages, right? So in that way that religion is imagined as part of your blood, um, that, that the British are trying to circumvent that. And so I think that there are, and there are loads of other grievances, right? Like there's battles and skirmishes and seizure of power and seizure of land. And as you get closer to the rebellion and after you start to see issues of opium growth show up in Northern states, where if you, I mean, just like drug lords, essentially, if, if a family had a certain a number of acres of land, let's say, and some of that was for opium growth and some was for vegetables, you saw British officials come in and say, you have to double your opium growth or we seize your land. And so there's a lot of practical violations of people's well-being and sense of security. Yeah. I mean, with this, I'm sure that this wasn't unique to the British occupied territories in the Indian continent. But you you talk and you touch just there on this racialization. Um, and it was it was something you focused on in your talk. Was this an exclusively British practice in the regions they controlled? No, racialization. So racialization is a process by which groups are made to be one cogent whole. And the way I like to think about this is, and I'm drawing on all sorts of folks in critical race and ethnic studies and literature, is that it's not just about defining groups as a whole, but those definitions become inheritable and prognostic and intrinsic. So you get them from your parents and your community. They are part of you regardless of whether or not, for example, you convert to a different religion. And they're prognostic. We can imagine that a seven-year-old Muslim boy is at risk of becoming a jihadi because of these intrinsic and inherited qualities. And racialization is not uh, simply a British project, but it is a product of the modern era where, again, we can't talk about modernity without talking about the rise of science, the rise of academic knowledge and disciplinary knowledge, and the rise of classification. And so in those spaces, we get the first set of advents of scientific racism. Yeah. I mean, in some of the rhetoric that came out, you showed an image um, earlier on, I, I believe, by uh, a, a gentleman by the name of Beto, who claimed that there was a association between a mosque and a regional flashpoint of, of unrest in the area, and basically said that this mosque was where rebel soldiers prayed. Now, if taken into a modern context, this seems to hearken on Islamophobia. Yeah, so Beto's a really fascinating case. He's this Italian photographer, right? So he has some of the earliest technology. He uses lithograph technology, and he's hired by British officials to do mostly landscape work of all of these British holdings across Asia. So we have work from him in what would now be places like Burma and Myanmar or, or, or Myanmar, places like um, Hong Kong and surrounding areas in China's mainland, India, 
places in Afghanistan. So that whole swath of places that the British either had control or were seeking control or were actively sort of fighting battles to gain control. And so on the one hand, you know, I don't know that it's strictly Islamophobia or racialization that's motivating his caption, but you know, I'm a I'm a good scholar of power. There's no such thing as an apolitical statement. Like everything has a politic. And he absolutely used these mosque landscapes that were unpeopled. There's no people in this mosque. And he's using it to make an argument about why that image is important. And so we could call it really purposeful and imagine that it is part of a larger project of labeling Muslims as uniquely responsible for the rebellion and labeling their prayer spaces as not prayer spaces, but militarized zones. I think to be more generous, we could label it as someone trying to make their work seem valuable and drawing on rhetoric that's flying around him at the time, one of the ways that you can sell that image is to say, this is where the rebels prayed. This is their spot. So either way, it's trading in a certain racism and a certain set of stereotypes. And I think we could read that generously or ungenerously. And unfortunately, we don't, we don't know what he was thinking at the time. There's no journals. There's just his um, collection of work and a few... Um, he has a few descriptions of what it was like to be in India during the time of the rebellion, but unfortunately this particular image, um, this mosque in Meirut that he's photographed, isn't part of that description. Did, did this image and did his classification of it, did it further stoke this, this fear or this racialization of um, Muslim Indians in that society at the time? I would think so. I think what's so hard to talk about when we talk about racialization is that it's a process that is so circular, right? So he draws on racialized tropes in writing that caption and in, and in taking that picture in the first place. And then it's published and it's really widely distributed, which then authorizes those racializations and stereotypes. So it confirms that position. And because it's so well distributed, it probably also clues readers of that image into those racializations and, and stereotypes. So it's, it's this really circular thing where it's both affirming what people already know and furthering that, that idea into bigger and broader and more seen venues. Kind of in line necessarily with that in regards to the follow-up after the um, Great Rebellion, you spoke of an organization called the Mohammedan Literary Society. How did this entity play a part in either the aftermath or the uh, tension between native Muslim populations and the British controllers? Yeah, so the Mohammedan Literary Society is one organization of many of, let's call them mostly elite Muslims in, in major urban centers, right? Of the late, of the late to mid 19th, mid to late 19th century, I would say. So this particular organization was important in my work because they seek a ruling, a fatwa, about whether or not British India 
was an appropriate place for Muslims to live. So for your listeners that are familiar, that that question of is it Dar al-Harb or Dar al-Islam, like is it it's a place of war, a place of peace, a place of non-religion, or a place of Islam, which become a really popular question to ask, not just in India, but in many colonized spaces, so that you could, I think the answers were two for per, twofold purposes. The first is you, as a practicing Muslim, could have some confirmation that this massive shift in regime that is impacting your day-to-day life was, in fact, an acceptable place to to be and to practice Islam. And I think the second reason is so that Muslims could perform good citizenship or good subjecthood, that this was about evidence. So every single one of these questions that goes to an imam or a mufti, uh, you get a pretty resounding set of answers of, yep, this is a totally okay place to be. We are absolutely free to worship, which means jihad is not called for. And so you, at least I, not you, I get the sense in the research that this is part of a strategic move of of publishing rulings that, that support that you are in fact friendly, you are in fact good subjects. So in the context of that space, the Mohammedan Literary Society had called upon, um, had, had asked for a ruling on this issue and was really active in Kolkata, which, as many folks know, is a major city, both for Muslim intellectualism in the 19th century and 20th century, but also had been a really active part of the British Empire. So they're important in terms of who they're talking to and what questions they're asking, but they're also a group of elite Muslims who are, you know, as the title suggests, literate and interested in literature and have enough leisure time to sort of go to monthly meetings that are conducted in multiple languages. Was was there any backlash from the British Empire on the formulation of these types of groups amid the tension? It's a hard question to answer because the British really did respond to, um, let's call them affinity organizations differently across India. And India is enormous, right? And there are so many languages and so many different kinds of caste, class, gender, religious politics. So I don't wanna pretend to be able to speak to all of those issues at once, but there was definitely some let's call it surveillance. I think that there was some sense that if you let folks be and monitored, but also monitored them, you could ensure state safety. There were definitely groups that came under far more heavy surveillance than others. And here I'm thinking of any Indian Muslims who out loud said that they subscribed to Ahli Hadith or what we would call Wahhabism. The British were very suspicious of Wahhabis And those folks were really heavily monitored and in some cases in what seemed like frivolous lawsuits found guilty of committing crimes against religion. And so I would say that those groups came under real heavy scrutiny. And then other than that, it really is hit or miss depending on the region and the time period. 
But for the most part, these elite Muslims who were clearly wealthy and well-read and probably used to be part of the Mughal Empire in some capacity or worked for the East India Company in some capacity, they were treated as suspicious, but not necessarily dangerous. Speaking of looking back at history, and I think this is one of the things you did mention a number of times, what led up to the Great Rebellion in India and and subsequent, especially in the treatment of Native populations, isn't really taught or hasn't been taught as much in K-12 or even in college curricula. You mentioned this. Why do you think this is the case? So I, I have really two two answers, and both of them I think are insufficient. The first is is that I think in America, so in my research, the U.S. and Canada do not talk about the 1857 rebellion. It's not in high school textbooks. It's not regularly taught in many of our college classrooms. You know, your 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 depart your history department would need to have a really robust. Indian history kind of overview that's not limited to like all of Indian history in one semester. And I think part of that is that in North America, we really think of stuff that happened on the other side of the world as not ours. Like this is not our problem. And I worry that that is directly related to understandings of racism and racialization and whose histories get to count. In Britain, they teach the rebellion as the Sepoy mutiny, which in the book I argue is part of a process of of British nationalism, right? So in labeling it a mutiny, which indicates a certain military, uh, it's a military thing, right? It's not, it, it has nothing to do with a widespread rebellion. It is the military disregarding or commanding officers and limit making it the sepoys. So it's like the name for Indian soldiers and a mutiny. We're really labeling this as a small kind of thing that was limited in its scope and really about disobedient, surly soldiers, as opposed to an Indian rebellion, which is sounds like all out warfare and the way that it's taught in India um, and in some places in Pakistan, though I, I have to admit, I didn't do a ton of research on how it's taught in Bangladesh. Um, so in the places in South Asia that used to be part of British India, it's taught as the first war of independence, which is also a nationalist move, right? Because it puts that first act of rebellion against the British or the first major act of rebellion against the British as part of a 90 year history to get rid of colonialism rather than a failed revolution. So I think I think that we just don't care about it that much, frankly. I think that we don't do a great job in the United States of teaching global history at any level. I think that when it involves non-white actors, we care even less. And so I think that there's a piece of racism here. I think there's a piece of like geographic superiority. And I think there's also a way that we tend to learn about European history, not including colonization, right? Like we learn all the European kings and we learn, you know, the Hundred Years' War and we learn about, I don't know, like dueling popes is a phrase that I remember from some AP history class. Like we just don't really learn about the brutalities of imperialism and the brutalities of colonization. Maybe we mention it once. 
So, and I also think that that goes to like Romila Tapar really famously is a very famous Indian historian who very famously wrote a book about Indians have history, that one of the first thing colonizers did when they landed in African states and Asian states was said that these people don't have history. They exist outside of the structures of time. And so it makes sense that those histories have not percolated through into our systems because our systems were bent towards erasing those histories in the first place, which is a pretty cynical view, but it is mine. <laughs> so looking on the Great Rebellion and how those events have carried to in our current century, you, you made a reference to a um, kind of a, a, a memorial that was, that was put up in, I believe, Haryana, India? Haryana. Yeah. Haryana. Though this memorial is put up to try and showcase a, a remembrance for those slain during the Great Rebellion, though it didn't seem to be related particularly to encompass those other than the Hindu native population. Do you see this as kind of an evidence of uh, an existing control over the, the narrative for one ethnic group over the other, or is this just an isolated case? No, I, I do see it as emblematic. I, I use that example in the book and in the talk to really show that this racialization, minoritization component of Islam and Muslims isn't limited both, uh, both to white British folk or to the 19th century, and that the imagination of India as a uniquely Hindu state carries with it some of that same racialized violence, that these Muslims are inherently not the same as Hindus. They're inherently different sorts of Indians. And I think it begs the question of whether or not they're Indian at all, which sadly is a question that um, the rise of the Hindu right and politics of Hindutva in the early 20th century, but certainly in the past 25, 30 years have really demonstrated. And so I think the ways that um, the ways that Muslims are being erased from the rebellion history is an interesting inverse of the racialization the British were doing. Right, the British wanted to make Muslims uniquely culpable for the rebellion and surveil them and ask the questions of whether or not they could be subjects or citizens. And in the contemporary moment, Indian governments are are suggesting that. Hindus were uniquely responsible for this glorious first war of independence and Muslims, because they are not proper Indians, couldn't possibly have taken part in that. So they're, they're not necessarily two sides of the same coin, but they might be two faces on the same die. Yeah. No, it's, it's that from your talk that surprised me the most. It seems like those in power always seem to find some way in which to showcase their grandeur at someone else's expense. So speaking on that, how can progressive governments, fair-minded pluralistic governments, as well as citizens who are doing this work, note this racialization while not being labeled themselves and then, you know, marginalized? I think my really cynical off-the-cuff answer is I think that's a risk we have to take. I think we have to take the risk as scholars that 
we might find our voices marginalized by those in power, that we might find our findings subject to critique, that we might end up on these horrifying and terrifying websites of like the lists of faculty who, you know, should lose their jobs or whose addresses should be published or whatever. So I think some of it is you, as someone who sees some of my research within the vein of um, anti-racist work, um, I think I have to be ready for that kind of blowback. And I'm not doing nearly the work that some other colleagues are doing around these kinds of issues, but I do place my work in conversation with those kinds of um, discourses. And I think the other thing is, you know, I, I'm a scholar for a reason. I really like receipts, you know, like cite your sources, bring them to the table when you can show them. It's one of the image, it's one of the reasons I love that Beato image so much is that it is a really simple sepia toned lithograph, you know, a, digit, a digitization of a lithograph with a caption, right? It's something that we can really quickly look at and really quickly apprehend on our own. And then I, as someone with specialized and expert knowledge can walk folks through why I find that image so disturbing in its banality. And so I think some of it is show what you know. And I think, I think for folks like me, you know, the reason I love doing podcasts like this or, you know, I, I have a regular gig up here in Vermont where I talk to like senior citizens and high school teachers, folks that aren't in my college classroom. I think the reason I do that work is because I believe that education is power and empowerment. And I think it's part of my job because not everyone has the time or the energy or the skills to go and get all the receipts for themselves. So it's my job to translate that, which is a, I mean, it's like simultaneously cynical, like be ready for the fight and be ready to deal with the consequences and, and optimistic, show what you know, the more people know, the better they can do something. And then it really is about being diligent about demanding that something be done. In line with that, and I know we didn't kind of discuss this previously, but we have a sister organization called the Bridge Initiative that deals with research and work centered around the awareness of the growing Islamophobia in here in, in the U.S. as well as um, in, in Europe. What do you feel that educators can do to try and bring an awareness to, but also to help dispel some of this fomented, you know, fear and, uh, you know, demonization, you know, before it gets out of hand, even though it may already be out of hand. Yeah, that's a really, like, I make no promises. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not a, a real scholar of anti-racist work or, um, let me, let me phrase it differently. I am a white lady trying to do better all the time. And I foreground my identity as both a white person and a Jewish person and a woman for reasons of like good feminist praxis, but also because I think that my own identities protect me from a lot of the vitriol that exists in the world, right? Like I am not a hijabi woman whose very presence in public spaces often creates a reaction. My body is not politicized 
in that way. And that means that I have a bigger responsibility because the safety risk, both to my person and to my psyche, is less for me than for others. And that doesn't mean I speak for those people, but it does mean that I use my limited space and expertise to tell, frankly, fellow white folk what I know. And I think I think what folks can do is, frankly, look in the mirror. I think a lot of anti-racist work starts by really checking your own assumptions and really coming to the discomfort of knowing that white supremacy is real and white folk implicitly hold up that system, whether we want to know that we're doing it or otherwise. And so in a system that's rigged for folks like me to win, I think it's my job to and my unique responsibility to say, okay, well, with my power, I'm going to try to unbuild this system. And so I think it starts with us before it starts with anybody else. And obviously, like reading good sources and getting material from reputable places is all very like, ne- like that's necessary. But I also think it starts, uh, it's an inside job, as, as folks might say. You got to start with you and really recognize that if you inadvertently stare at hijabi women or clutch your pearls when um, a black person walks by or find it plausible that as we watch the hate crime hearings just this past week, find it plausible that a man who watched his three children be slaughtered should be questioned about whether or not his religion teaches hate when he is there as a victim of a hate crime thrice over. I think all of those things are internalized ways that we replicate racist ideas. And so we, and I mean white folk here, need to need to check ourselves before we think we can go help others because otherwise the help we're giving might cause harm and it might further stereotypes even when we mean to do better. And I, yeah. I mean, that's like, again, I'm not, that's not my expertise. That's just my, uh, frankly, that's my politics. I think that, um, I think that I was raised by really tough post-Holocaust Jewish folk who understood that you're a hair's breadth from danger. And I think that they raised me with a good set of ethics. And I, I hope to bring that ethics to, to the scholarship I do. Yeah. And I, you know, I think that's at the core of, of what we do here at the center. Now, for those who want to learn more about your work, you know, upcoming or current, how could folks uh, look and see? Uh, do you have any projects you'd want to uh, highlight? Yeah, so uh, I kill time on Twitter. So you could come find me on Twitter. My handle is at Prof Ermf, that's P-R-O-F-I-R-M-F, my initials. So I'm always there like hawking some silly article or highlighting my students' work or making jokes. I um, I am working on uh, an edited volume with Brandon Wheeler, who's another scholar of Islam called um, Words of Experience, uh, Translating Islam with Carl Ernst, which is uh, currently under review, but we hope will be out next year with Equinox Press. It's a fresh rift of sorts, but it's about the future of Islamic studies um, and where uh, a set of scholars think Islamic studies is headed based on their own research and teaching. 
And I'm researching currently a, a global history of how the colonial project structures anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. So I'm diving deeper into the research of the history of hate. And, um, and I'm grateful that I have a university and a department that supports me in that work. Well, we wish you the best of luck on your work. We thank you so much for coming in and speaking uh, at our, at our uh, center and so much for joining us on this episode of Building Bridges. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Building Bridges, brought to you by ACMCU. Follow us on Twitter at ACMCU and like our Facebook page at acmcu.georgetown. Feel free to submit any questions and tune in for upcoming episodes.